Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of The Last Symptom. In this episode, we're going to talk about viewing failures correctly, how to have a conversation with unhealthy people. You know, holidays are coming up, and I'm sure a lot of you are going to be around family, a lot of unhealthy family. How do you have a conversation with those people? I'm going to share a quote from The Art of War and how it offers insights into emotional health. What happens when you're trying to live with boundaries and somebody says that nobody has a right to tell them what to do? And if there's still time left over, then we'll do a campfire story. But first, we have to do the disclaimer and the introduction music. So let's get that out of the way. Stick around. I'll be right back. I'm Brian Barnett. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not a doctor. I have no legal license in any field of psychology. But... I did live a large part of my life with borderline personality disorder unknowingly, and I really did rid myself of the disorder completely and permanently. Through that, I've become an expert on issues involving emotional health. I accept no responsibility whatsoever for your feelings, thoughts, behaviors, decisions, and actions, including your decision to watch or listen to this show at all. But I do hope you might benefit yourself from the insights I share. Here's that quote from uh, The Art of War that I said that we would talk about. The quote is this, Every battle is won before it's fought. What sorts of insights can that offer us in trying to be emotionally healthy, trying to achieve authentic recovery? Let me ask you this. Why is it true that every battle is won before it's fought in the context of keeping cool in any interactions you might have with somebody? Every battle is won before it's fought. How is that true in not allowing some compulsion to get the better of you. So I wanted to share that quote with you and give you something to think about. I'll, I'll share some of my own thoughts about this with you. Uh, when I, I was watching a movie the other day and they made that quote, I think a lot of us at the beginning of the process imagine a day when we'll be able to just walk right into any situation and just master it uh, handle it masterfully right like some kind of <clears throat> buddhist monk or something like that i'll tell you that in my personal experience that is not the secret to my success there's two things that are the secret to my success avoiding certain situations altogether um, another one is being aware of when a situation is going nowhere and getting out but it's really a mindset it's really a a set of perspectives and attitudes that I live with now that uh, help me avoid situations altogether or get out of situations once I realize I'm in them. And so can you see how the art of war is correct when we're talking about an emotion, emotional health? Every battle being won before it's fought. It's a mindset going in. If, I see, if I'm going to see that I'm going to just be wasting my time, then I'm not going to continue wasting my time. I'll just get graciously get out of that situation. And then there are other circumstances where I say, well, I'm not even going to put myself into that situation in the first place. Therefore, the war or the battle 
whatever you'd like to call it, is won before it's even fought. Uh, keeping cool in any interactions you might have with somebody. Of course, we're going to be talking about this later on in today's, this week's show when we talk about how to have a conversation with unhealthy people. But that also, it just comes down to attitudes. It comes down to attitudes and perspectives and thinking before you even get into an interaction with somebody. The battle is won before it's fought. Compulsions. Right? Let's say that you have a spending compulsion, you have a sex compulsion, you have any unhealthy compulsion. Uh, you don't just try to eat healthy uh, in order to diet. No, you go crazy and uh, you starve yourself or you do these really extreme things when you diet. Just an example, right? Just something I'm pulling off the top of my head. So how can you avoid allowing a comp- these compulsions to get the better of you? It's a really comes down to attitudes and thinking beforehand. Winning a battle against a spending compulsion happens before you're even in the the store. Winning that compulsion happens before you even log on to Amazon or Walmart or Kohl's or Macy's or you know where wherever you like to shop. The battle is won before it's fought. So I just thought I'd drop that onions and give you guys something to think about. I certainly do nowadays when I do find myself in situations because I, you know, I can't control the universe. And every once in a while, I will find myself in a situation that uh, I would prefer not to be in. And I certainly do handle those situations infinitely, infinitely better than I used to when I was still living with my emotional disorder. But it's not the secret to my success. Let's ask you this. The battle for maintaining inner peace and contentment. When is that battle won? It's won before it's fought. It's won before it's fought. The way I maintain my inner peace and contentment, in an imperfect way, I should say. I don't want you to think I'm some kind of um, perfect person or anything like that. Like, I don't ever lose my cool or anything like that. I I do. But when we're talking about these things, we're talking about things in general, right? Like, are you usually miserable or are you usually happy? Are you usually discontent or are you usually content? Uh, We often talk about the teeter-totter. Well, we could talk about the teeter-totter in that too. A normal, healthy, imperfect life is going to involve moments of discontent, the loss of peace, losing one's cool. So it's not a question of eliminating them completely, those things completely. It's a, it's a matter of which one are you experiencing more often? Which, on which side is that teeter-totter or that uh, seesaw, as lots of people like to call it? And on what side is it always tilted on or most often tilted on in general? That's how you know what kind of life you have. And almost all of the time, my teeter-totter is tilted in, on the side of contentment and inner peace and these sorts of things. How do I make that happen? I win the battle before it's even fought. I do it in the way I just kind of described. I avoid getting into situa- certain situations altogether. Or once I realize I'm in a situation, I recognize it and figure out a, 
a way to get myself out of there. And then the rest of it is just thinking. How do I choose to think about the thing? Um, if I'm in a situation I can't get out of, it, it really it just still comes down to perspectives and thinking. How do I choose to think about this thing? One example of that is, you know, if I'm around a bunch of people and they're, uh, let's say that they're attacking my dignity. They're, they're assaulting my dignity, my sense of dignity. This hasn't happened. <laughs> so I'm giving you kind of a what if scenario. But um, would I be able to maintain my inner peace? Sure, I could. Sure, I could. As long as I remind myself, continue to remind myself in the moment that no matter how unpleasant that is, that their assault on my dignity can't reflect my dignity. What other people think and say to me cannot be a reflection about any truths about me. They can only reflect things about the people doing that. So can I maintain inner peace and contentment? Yeah. Through accurate thinking, accurate, healthy thinking. It doesn't mean it's pleasant to be taunted and mistreated. But it does mean that when you maintain an accurate perception of the situation, that you can maintain your inner peace and contentment and dignity. All right, so there's, to get us started, from The Art of War, you know, a really famous book. I wish I could tell you that I read it cover to cover. I ain't. I've uh, dabbled with it. You know, I've, I've, I've had the book for years and years and years. And I've brushed through, uh, just kind of browsed through it and picked out things that I thought were interesting. But uh, otherwise, it's, uh, it's not really the kind of book that holds my attention. So I don't want you thinking like I'm some kind of literary genius or anything or literary um, professor. That reminds me of uh, War and Peace. War and Peace. I remember picking up War and Peace in my early 20s. I was telling my friend Jordan, my late friend Jordan, I'm really enjoying this book. He looked at me and he said, no, you're not. <laughs> I said, no, I am. I am enjoying the book. Now, I wasn't lying to him. I was enjoying the fact that I was spending time with something that is considered such a classic work of literature. Did I understand it all? Was it riveting? Was all of it riveting for me? No, it wasn't. And so in that sense, he, he was right. <laughs> um, but uh, sure miss my old friend Jordan. He, he, knew me, he knew me very well. Can't wait to see him again someday. Boundaries. What happens when you start living with boundaries and some of the unhealthy people in your life who are going to be affected by these boundaries tells you, Nobody has a right to tell me what to do. So remember that in boundaries, the least important part of boundaries is boundaries. So I don't, in my work with Last Symptom, I don't usually prefer to talk about them as boundaries. I prefer to talk about them as the BCCCs of emotional health. Why do I do that? Because the Cs are more important than the B. But to hear people in general talk about boundaries, you wouldn't know that. A boundary is just a line that people aren't supposed to cross. What are the CCCCs part of the equation? Communication, consequences, conditions. A consequence is something that must happen when a boundary is ignored. Notice that a consequence is not uh, optional. 
It's not optional. If a person fails to carry through with a consequence, there was no boundary to begin with. Because remember what a boundary is? It's a line that can't be crossed. So once somebody crosses the boundary, if uh, the person with the boundary fails to follow through on a consequence, there was no boundary. A boundary only exists if there's a consequence. And then what's the conditions? Well, the conditions are interesting because, for one, it allows a person who has violated boundaries a healthy way back into your good graces or back into your life. Not only that, but it allows people who have never been in your life to meet conditions to be to qualify to be in your life. <clears throat> so I haven't said all that. What happens when you start to uh, try to live with boundaries and then one of these unhealthy people, a parent, a partner, uh, an adult child, says, hey, wait a second. Nobody has a right to tell me what to do. How do you respond to that? If, in a conversation, you resort to calling me names, I will end that conversation, and I will block every means you have of getting in touch with me and of communicating with me. So what is that? That's the boundary. I will not be spoken to in a certain way. You can disagree with me, but you cannot resort to name-calling or personal attacks. You have to disagree with my argument, the thing that the belief or the argument that I am presenting. You're allowed to disagree with that. You're not allowed to attack me personally. And then what was the consequence we just said? The consequence would be that conversation will end, and I will cut off any avenues you have for communicating with me. Now, let's say that you, you say this to your partner who's been used to calling you um, a fat idiot every time he gets mad or cursing at you and calling you a stupid bee. Or let's say that the woman is calling him a, a crybaby or, you know, uh, these really nasty personal attacks that really attack. They're, they're designed to attack a person's Fears about themselves, really, uh, ain't, ain't it? So let's say you're not going to tolerate that anymore. And you say that, here's the boundary, here's the consequence, if it happens. And that person replies, nobody has a right to tell me what to do. What, how do you reply to that? Here's how you reply to that. You're right. You're right. Nobody has a right to tell you what to do. So how can you say that when you're presenting this scenario to a person, you say, um, if you talk to me this way, if you resort to calling me names, if you attack me personally, that this will be the consequence. How can you say that and at the same time agree that nobody has a right to tell them what to do? Because only unhealthy people misunderstand the nature of, of boundaries and consequences. The nature of boundaries and consequences is not me telling you what to do. Rather, it's me saying what I'm willing to tolerate for myself. You can do whatever you want to do. But depending on what you do, 
I will then make certain decisions for myself. So a boundary is not a way to control another person. It's not a way to tell somebody else what they have to do. It's telling them what will happen if they choose to do a certain thing. What will happen as far as your choices for yourself. So how do you reply when somebody says, hey, listen here, nobody has a right to tell me what to do. You say you're absolutely right. You're absolutely, I'm proud of you. I'm pr- you're getting it. You're right. Nobody has a right to tell you what to do. Nobody has a right to tell me what to do either. Nor does anybody have a right to tell me what I have to tolerate or put up with in my life. You should appreciate that. You should appreciate that because I see that you feel the same way about it. You don't want anybody telling you how to live your life or the things that you should endure in your own life or how you should live your own life. Nobody can tell you that, can they? Well, that's true for me too. So you're absolutely right. I'm proud of you. This should go down real easy then. When if you ever violate my boundary, I make certain decisions for myself based on you violating my boundary. So I thought that you might find that inter- or, uh, useful. Again, I uh, threw a lot of this together with the idea in mind that uh, the holidays are coming up. People often are around a lot of uh, family members, and these family members are often very unhealthy. And at least the folks in my audience are trying to escape out of these very unhealthy, poisonous environments and thinking while at the same time not cutting people entirely off and then wondering how to interact with these sorts of folks. Let me tell you something here recently that happened in my family. I have a cousin, and um, I was supposed to go on this big wilderness backpacking trip during the week of Thanksgiving. I ended up getting the flu the day before I was supposed to head out there. And I'll tell you what, it hung on for a solid 10, two weeks, two weeks, almost said 10 days, but no, it wasn't even 10 days. It was a two solid weeks. Now I'd say that the first four days were the worst, but you know, for the next uh, week after that, week and a half after that, I was dealing with phlegm and congestion. And, and so I was pretty miserable, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point of me telling this is not to complain about how miserable I've been the past couple weeks. I was going to go out to this area that my family knows about. We call it Monkey Holler. Monkey Holler. And I had learned here recently that the government has taken over that area, a really beautiful wilderness area with these really interesting waterfalls and rock formations and everything. And my dad... I remember my dad taking me out there when I was a kid. The folks on my dad's side of the family, my cousins, my uncles, uh, my, what would you, what do you call a nephew who's not your nephew? <laughs> you know, like your cousin's kids. You know, they're going out there a lot now, but we call it monkey holler. And that's not what anybody else knows it by. Uh, but I had learned that the government was taking that over and going to turn it into a reserve into like a, I think a federal, either a federal or a state wildlife reserve. I said, man, I got to get out there before they do that. So 
I can still be out there while it's, you know, the Wild West. I can do whatever I want out there. I don't have to, don't need any permits or don't have to worry about other people being out there. Got sick the day before. We had been a long time since I'd been out there. And so I reached out to my cousin and I asked him, yeah, how, how do I find this place? I, I haven't been out there in 20 years. Uh, so I had texted him and he texted me back right away. Uh, I think he thought maybe that there was something bad going on, like uh, there was a somebody was in the hospital or something. Because I I just sent him a message saying, "Hey, I got a question for you." And you know how texting is; you send a message. Very rarely does anybody immediately, especially if it's not somebody you've talked to in a while. Very rarely do they immediately text you back. So I kind of sent the message, "Hey, uh, I got a question for you." And kind of put my phone aside and got into some other things. And I come back and I had like four or five messages from him like, hey, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, so I, you know, um, I didn't mean to worry him or anything like that. But I, I said, well, I'm thinking about going out there to Monkey Holler, spending a week alone with my dogs. Um, I was wondering if you could help me remember how to get out there and all this stuff. So he... Yeah, sure. And he tells me and kind of gives me an idea of how, where how, where it's at and how to get out there. Now, keep in mind, I hadn't talked to him in like years. So this was, you know, I understand this was out of the blue for him. But then later, I think it was like two days later, I'm scrolling through social media and I come across the meme that he's posted. The point of the meme was, People only reaching out when they need something. People only reaching out when you need something. You think that was intended for me? Well, it's impossible to uh, dogmatically say one way or the other. But I'll tell you, I hadn't seen him post that, anything like that. And then it was right after our interaction, a couple days after that that he posted that people only reaching out when you need something. So that is what we talk about when we're talking about passive aggressive communication behavior style. You're trying to send a message without simply expressing to another person what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you feel like you need to express instead of just simply pulling your panties up and expressing it, trying to do, trying to do it in a roundabout way. To get the message across, but without you having to be responsible and adult about it so that you just address it. just You just address it. So I wanted to share that experience with you. This is uh, permeates my family, this passive-aggressive communication behavior style. And so very early on in my recovery, when I was trying to get a clear head and everything about these sorts of things, it was my policy to not have any interactions with my family. Uh, no, nobody on my dad's side of the family or on my mother's side of the family. Because the reason for this is not be to punish them. The reason is that I had sat down and I had, I, I had asked myself very honestly this question. What is the most important thing to me? What is the most important thing to me 
in my life right now. And I decided that the most important thing to me was getting healthy. Getting healthy. Now, if something is the most important to you, what would you not be willing to do in order to achieve it? The answer is nothing. Nothing. If it's the most important thing to you, you are willing to make any sacrifice for that. That was the conversation I had to have with myself. What is the most important thing to me? So it was not pleasant all the time for me to block people out of my life or to um, go years without having any interactions with them or anything like that. It, it wasn't a pleasant thing. I don't want anybody to think for a second that at any time this was just something that I did joyfully, joyfully or like... Um, out of hate for my family or out of joy. Like this brings me all kinds of joy to, to uh, eliminate these influences out of my life for a time. No, it wasn't that. I'll tell you what it was like. It was like, I want to lose 30 pounds, but I love pizza. What real, realistically... What sorts of sacrifice, sacrifices do I realistically have to be willing to make if truly what I truly want to accomplish is to lose 30 pounds and have a six-pack? Pizza. Pizza's got to go, doesn't it? I have to be willing to go without pizza every Friday night or fast food every three days. What other kind of sacrifices must I make? Well, um, can't just eat as much as I want to, right? I can't eat when I'm just bored, right? It's nice when you're just sitting around watching a movie or something to be eating something or drinking something that has calories in it. I'll tell you, big sacrifice for me, whiskey, which I'm sipping on right now while we do the show. I really enjoy hooch. It's a nice way to relax in the evenings. Uh, it's a cultural, you know, culturally it's a big part of my life, having grown up and the men that I have admired in my life, uh, had a respectful and reasonable and balanced view of alcohol and its place in life, usually sitting around with good conversation or music and those sorts of things. And so it's an important part of my life. Is it the most important part of my life? Well, it just depends on when we're talking about. If I want to lose 30 pounds and I want to look like a movie star, then if that's truly what I want, I truly want to lose 30 pounds and look like a movie star, then I'll be willing to give up the whiskey, won't I? Well, I enjoy every night that I get a craving for whiskey. Well, I enjoy every, on every one of those occasions passing up the whiskey and drinking a glass of water instead? No, I won't enjoy that. But I will enjoy achieving the thing that I want the most, which is to lose 30 pounds and look like a movie star. So that was what it was like for me when I started putting distance between me and family. 
I recognized that their ways of thinking were also my ways of thinking, that they had been my ways of thinking for my entire life, 35, 38 years. And what I realized was that it's very difficult to escape that form of thinking and to learn to view the world in an entirely different, healthier way. It's already difficult. If it's already difficult just doing that without any unhealthy influences, imagine how hard it is to do with those influences all around you all the time. You see, your tendency is already to think in those unhealthy ways. It's already that. You already have that tendency. And now you're around folks who are, they think that way. They share those attitudes. How easy they pull you right back into those forms of thinking or prevent you from escaping those forms of thinking to begin with. So it's not a matter of hating family. It's not a matter of punishing them or anything like that. It's simply a matter of this is what I this is the most important thing I want to achieve. And these are the sacrifices I have to make in order to get there. It's a very realistic, practical, um, rational approach to the thing. Now, as time has gone by and I've achieved my goal, I'm healthy. I live a peaceful and content life. My, my thinking most of the time is healthy, then I've, in certain situations, for certain individuals, have allowed myself moments of, uh, or, you know, I've, I've allowed some of them back into my life, my life in measured ways. Um, my cousin here that I'm talking about is one of those ways. Uh, I went out and saw him and his dad, my uncle, uh, a couple years ago spent the afternoon with them, and it was fantastic. You know, it was a fantastic memory. It's not something I want to do every weekend. Not, And again, it's not because I don't love them or anything like that. It's just that their thinking and my thinking, their ways of communicating even, you know, we're talking about this passive-aggressive stuff, even their ways of communicating are not my ways of communicating. So love of my family has a place. Love of my family does not outweigh my interest in maintaining a peaceful life in general and in staying healthy and maintaining healthy forms of thinking and interacting with people. This is not just with family. There's folks from like school, you know, that I graduated with and other people that I know that uh, I care about. I hope good things for them. At the same time, I have no interest in having that influence in my life on a consistent, frequent basis. It has its place, and I keep it in its place. So again, some things to think about as we're going into the holidays and people are going to be spending time with unhealthy family. I hope you find these things helpful. How do you view challenges? And maybe more importantly, how do you view failures? I hope that your time spent with me, that I've been helping you begin viewing challenges as opportunities. Because that's really what they are. 
Every challenge is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to put into action the thinking and attitudes and mindsets that you and I talk about here. How do you view failures? You know, I say that it's important to view failures positively. Now, there is a, a condition for this. Failures should be looked at positively only by people who care. And what I mean by that is they should only be looked at positively by people who will be disappointed by a failure and want to try harder. A person with a goal, an, object, an objective for self-improvement. But if you're not a person with an objective for self-improvement, then no, you shouldn't look at failures positively. Looking at failures positively is only for people who meet the conditions to be able to do that. And what are the conditions for that? The condition, frankly, is that you care. Remember we talked about uh, last in the last episode or a few episodes back, uh, it, it was the previous episode when we were listing laws and principles of emotional health. I said, good people do bad things and bad people do good things. Therefore, the things people do cannot be the thing that determines whether a person is good or bad. What is the thing that determines whether a person is good or bad. That We didn't follow up on it. We, we were just kind of listing things that we've talked about in the past. But what is the thing that determines if a person is good or bad or not? Very simply, it's do they care? Do they care? So when I fail, when I make a mistake, when I do something bad, do I care about that or do I not care? What does caring about that look like? Well, in the past for me, when I was unhealthy, it looked like beating myself up, like hating myself more. As I've gotten healthy, what I've realized is that that's not a healthy attitude to have about it. It's good that I'm distraught over having made a mistake, over having done something wrong. It's good that I'm distraught. What's not good is if I'm distraught about myself, about who and what I am. So we also talked about in the previous episode, just making distinctions. The distinction has to be made that, that the mistake is wrong. The mistake is shameful. The mistake is something negative that needs to be improved upon. But when you're unhealthy, you don't make that distinction. What you do is you use the mistake to hate yourself more. You don't hate the mistake. You use the mistake to hate yourself is what happens. Back to what we're talking about here. Who gets to look at failures in a positive way? People who care. People who care and who are trying not to make mistakes. So it's not a matter of every failure can be looked up on in a positive way. There's a condition for that. The condition is you have to care and you have to be trying and you have to be interested in self-improvement and in learning how to make that mistake much fewer times moving forward 
and eventually maybe never make that mistake again or do that bad thing or whatever. But for those of you who are trying and who care, I want you to think about failures in a positive way. If you're thinking about them in a negative way, then you've been looking at them all wrong. And, you know, really, if you're trying at all, if you're trying any kind of self-improvement at all, is that not evidence that you care? Of course it is. Because what you see in a person who doesn't care is that they don't try. It's just the natural, it's the law of genuine attitude reflection. If you ain't trying, you don't care. If you are trying, you do care. The law of genuine attitude reflection. Remember what it says? It says that your natural behaviors around a thing cannot betray whatever your true attitude about the thing is to begin with. So the very act of trying is proof that you care which means you're not a bad person. You might do bad things, but you're not a bad person. Failures are necessary. First of all, there's nobody out there not having them. There's, there's nobody out there not having failures. The second thing is, is that to do something right requires failure because only by doing something wrong and getting a poor result, can you see where to make adjustments and which adjustments need, need to be made? Now, in our work here, the all failures can be traced back to thinking and perspectives and attitudes. Why is that? Because thinking and perspectives and attitudes are the very core of emotional disorders. It's really all it comes down to. Thinking and looking at a thing incorrectly. Therefore, when you approach the thing and the way you behave around a thing is based on an incorrect premise. I don't want to get too complicated in this episode. I just, one thing we're talking about seems to lead to another. But do you see that failures are necessary? If, if you're going to become an artist, if you're going to become a, a, a truly skilled artist, what does that require? I can tell you because I was a cartoonist for years. I started when I was six years old trying to draw Disney characters. And what I remember about the Disney characters is that the, the lines were so smooth, so smooth. They had a, they were like music, man. I mean, if you look at the the rough sketches of Disney characters. This is back when everything was hand-drawn. You look at Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. The, the lines just flow in such a smooth pattern. They're so sweet, those lines. They, they caused a, 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 an emotional reaction inside of me, these lines, looking at these rough lines. Rough, I say, but smooth at the same time. What a beauty to the lines in Disney characters, the rough sketches. Well, at six, I wanted to be able to recreate that with my own hand and a pencil and a piece of paper. And so I would sit around trying to draw the circle of Mickey Mouse's head and the circle of his ears and make it look like those rough sketches in this book that my mom had gotten me. 
Did I get it right the first time? The first time I sat down to draw Mickey Mouse, did I get it right? Not even close. Man, that I was six years old. I still remember the disappointment in myself of not being able to recreate these pictures in this book. And I would get so frustrated and try to draw the circles. And they wouldn't turn out anything like what was in the book. What was in the book was beautiful. It was like music. But when I tried to do it, it looked crude and um, no no beauty to it at all. And I used to get so frustrated that I'd, I would pull my hair out. And my mom used to pull me aside. Just She'd say, put it, put it aside for a little bit. Put it aside until you calm down and you can go back to it. But that was my drive. I have to be able to draw these circles. Somebody's drawing these circles with their hand. And if they can do it, I should be able to do it too. Well, you know, I could do that now with my eyes closed and <laughs> one hand tied by one hand and one foot tied behind my back. But uh, my daughter, she loves to draw too. And uh, early on, maybe four or five years old, I'd see her drawing. Man, she'd get frustrated at not being able to draw a unicorn, for example, the way she saw in a picture. And I could certainly identify with that. So I got to have conversations with her about that. You know, I, I can only imagine the frustration you're feeling. But what I can tell you is the frustration I remember feeling when I was your age trying to draw Mickey Mouse and friends. How did I eventually get better? Failure, adjustment, trying again. Failures, adjustment, trying again. Failures, adjustment, trying again. Failures, adjustments, trying again. But how do you know what adjustments to make without the failure? You don't. You don't. The failures are necessary in order for you to understand, I need to put less pressure on the pencil here. I need to sweep my arm around bigger here. I need to hold my, my wrist less, less rigid here. How do you know that without the failures? You don't. The same thing I tell my daughter. If you don't give up, you will be able to do it. So that's what should motivate you to not give up. That's the thing you're working toward. You will achieve it. But in the meantime, how are you ever going to get there without the failures? So if you're looking at the failures as being something wrong, as being something negative, you're looking at the failures the wrong way. Why is that advice good for my daughter? Why was it good for me as a child trying to draw? Because I cared. I cared. I had a real objective in mind. I had a goal of where I wanted to get, and I was trying to get there. So did I qualify for the conditions? Did I meet the conditions in order to look at failure positively? Yes. I met the conditions. My daughter meets the conditions. Do you meet the conditions to be able, with a clean conscience, 
to look at failures as a positive thing? Well, it depends on if you care. It depends on if you care and if you have a goal in mind that you're trying to reach. If you do, you meet the conditions to be able to look at failures positively, not negatively. To be able to look at failures as something necessary, not optional. And that might even be more important than just looking at them positively. When you realize that, hey, in order to get to my objective, to reach my goal, I must experience failures. That might be more important than just trying not to think of them in a negative way. Failures help us to see what practical adjustments we can make and then get excited about an opportunity to try again. When I begin to fail at drawing Mickey Mouse or any cartoon character, by seven or eight, you know, I was beginning to create my own cartoon characters. But every failure began to bring excitement. Ah, this is good. Not only did I fail, but I see where I failed. Now I see what I can do differently to correct that failure moving forward. I'm excited to see the improved result, let's say. Recently, I read something exceptional that I thought it would be fantastic to share with all of you. And uh, especially, again, as the holidays are coming on us and we're going to be having all these interactions that we don't typically have throughout other parts of the year. Consider a conversation where with a family member or with a partner where there's a risk of the conversation turning into an argument. You might, up until this point, have been thinking about the things we talk about, the things you're going to be trying out in real life as techniques. I don't want you to think about them as techniques. These are not techniques. What have we stressed throughout this conversation? That everything goes back to attitudes, thinking. So instead of thinking about these things as techniques, like I'm just going to try to talk slower, I'm going to try to uh, not uh, interrupt as much, or I'm going to try to listen more, uh, these sorts of things. Think about them as thinking. They're not techniques, but thinking, attitudes. So what is one practical attitude? Not technique, but attitude. You can maintain while in conversations. Why is, a, why is an attitude uh, more powerful than a technique? Because a technique has to be memorized. Techniques have to be memorized. Like if you're learning how to carve a, uh, a statue or something out of a block of wood, then you might memorize certain techniques, right? What tool do I need here? How much pressure do I have to put here? These are techniques. But if somebody teaches you an attitude or a philosophy around the whole thing, do you need to know exactly what tool to use? or how much pressure to put, or how hard to saw in a certain part of that log. No, you can accurately come up with your own solutions to these things as long as you have the right attitude, the right philosophy around the thing. So maybe one artist likes to use uh, an H2 pencil to do a sketch. 
And maybe somebody else likes to use a softer lead to do a sketch. But they're both, if they both understand the philosophy around what makes for a good sketch, then there's room for personal preferences within that philosophy, right? Or that attitude of how to best sketch something. So what I'm trying to uh, share with you here is an attitude, not a technique. And one attitude that we've discussed is getting off the merry-go-round. Remember what, how I've described getting off the merry-go-round? I've usually discussed it as when I see that a person will not be swayed by anything I have to say, or when it occurs to me that that person is not being intellectually or emotionally honest with either themselves or with me, I say, well, this is pointless. So if I continue in this conversation, I'm on a merry-go-round. It's, it's not going anywhere. It's not like a train that is going from here to there. It's going nowhere. And do I really want to spend my time and energy that way? So somebody recently described to me my own concept of how this merry-go-round initially gets turning by using this beautiful description that I want to share with you. She was talking about a partner. And she said the merry-go-round is when he's sure he's right and I'm sure I'm right. Isn't that beautiful in its simplicity? It's exactly what I've just said with a lot more words, <laughs> but in a much simpler way, she has captured the idea. That is what it is. He's sure he's right. There's nothing I say is going to convince him otherwise. He's not even listening to me at this point because he's that sure that he's right and I'm wrong. And I'm convinced and completely set on the idea that I'm right and he's wrong. Where are we? We're on a merry-go-round. You can ride that merry-go-round if you want to. Some people like, just like the, the, the argument. They just like the debate. I don't, not when it's a merry-go-round. Because I say, well, there's, it's, it's, that's not a constructive use of my time or energy. And I think a lot of emotional health, I don't think, I know, a lot of emotional health is, comes down to that. Is, is this a constructive use of my time and energy? And that goes back, doesn't it, to what we were talking about in the art of war. A battle is won before it's fought. Do you have that realization before you're sucked into a thing? Do you have that conversation with yourself? Can any constructive thing come out of this? Yes or no? If you see the potential for something constructive to come out of, the, out of a thing, you might be willing to endure some frustrating conversation where people disagree and that sort of thing. And you don't feel like you're wasting your time. But if you just see it's going to be a merry-go-round and nothing constructive is going to come out of it, then you avoid the situation altogether or you get out very early on, right? Do you see how the, the battle is won before it's fought? When you think that way, can anything constructive come out of this? No. Okay. I'm going to get off the merry-go-round now then. While we're still relatively calm, we're still being relatively polite with each other, I'm going to get off right now. If I get off right now, nobody's feelings are going to be hurt. This won't end in a bad way. The battle is won before it's fought. 
But once you perceive that the other person is sure that he is or she is right and you've done your work, you're convinced you're right and that the other person is just not um, willing to stop and consider another perspective, that's the moment right there to change the subject or leave the conversation altogether. But here's another thought. Pay attention to your attitude about the purpose for having a conversation in the first place. Why is it important to pay attention to your attitude about the purpose for having a conversation in the first place? The reason is because your attitude going into the conversation the purpose that you're having that conversation at all will affect the nature of your delivery, won't it? For example, is it your attitude that you have to be right, quote-unquote, or that by the end of the conversation, the other person must have surrendered and be agreeing with you? So this takes some frank honesty with yourself, doesn't it? When you're having a conversation with somebody, Ask yourself in the, in the privacy of your own head, do I want to continue this conversation? And if I do, why? What, what's my end goal? There could be a couple of end goals. Let's say that I follow through on this conversation. I allow this conversation to keep on going. And by the end of it, the person does not agree with me. Am I all right with that? Am I okay with that? Are there other things that I might get out of this conversation beyond just winning? the conversation. There are, there are some things. There are some things, some constructive things you can get out of a conversation with a person, even if at the end you both still disagree with each other. You know what that is? Can you think of what that is? What is the constructive value, valuable thing that you can end up with after having a conversation with somebody who completely disagrees with you who by the end of the conversation does not relent and begin to agree with you, does not accept defeat, and at the end of the conversation, you are still convinced that you're right and that they're wrong. What is something of value you could get out of that conversation anyway? The thing of value you can get out of that conversation anyway is that it allows you to know the other person better. Is there value in that? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of value in that. If you view people as people, if, if you're learning to view people as people, that is to say as individuals, and to value people as individuals, and to value their individuality, there's a lot of value to be gotten out of having a conversation, even when at the end of it, you both still disagree with each other and you have neither one of you have swayed the other in any way whatsoever because you can still walk away from that conversation with deeper insights into that person and their individuality and what makes them them but that depends on your purpose for having the conversation in the first place doesn't it because if your only purpose is to win or to be right, or to sway them and make them change their mind, and they don't do that, 
then the only thing you're going to end up with is deep frustration. So there are times where the merry-go-round, I want, I want off. I don't want on there. It's, it's not, there's no benefit to me. Even the benefit of getting to know the person better in this, in certain situations is not worth my time because the only thing I'm going to learn more about that person is just how deeply emotionally and intellectually dishonest they are. That's really what you'll end up with sometimes. Sometimes. It depends on what the topic is. For example, if somebody's talking to me about how to recover from an emotional disorder and their argument is that it's genetic or um, any of these other lies, it's an inherent part of somebody, they were born that way, these sorts of things. Um, there's no reason for me to continue having a conversation with a person like that. I, the things that it's going to reveal to me about them is not going to uh, be of any benefit to me or make me like them more or anything like that. These are not even things that I want to, that would be healthy for me to just accept as a positive about them, right? These are things that a person should change, can change, should change. Nobody should be having a conversation where they're not emotionally and intellectually honest. That right there is unhealthy and I just don't want anything to do with it. But what if we're having a conversation about What's better, have a house on the beach or to have a house in the mountains? What if we're having a conversation like that? In the first conversation, we're talking about emotional health and these sorts of things. And um, there's just nothing I can support there that would in any way contribute to that person remaining emotionally unhealthy or thinking in flawed, you know, fundamentally flawed ways that's going to keep them emotionally unhealthy, keep them treating other people unhealthily. I can't even agree to disagree with somebody like that. I have to push back on the emotional unhealth. But there's so many other conversations like what's best place to have a house on a beach or on the, in the woods. Um, a person doesn't have to agree with me at the end. What does the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority help us understand? Among many things it helps us understand, that one law in, you know, in the last in the previous episode when I mentioned it, I just kind of like breezed right through it. But my goodness, uh, soon I need to do a, a new episode about the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority so that you folks and anybody who comes across these shows in the future can understand just what a massive law that is. The insights that can be gained from that law alone so that a person can make immediate adjustments to their attitudes and their approach to life is probably unparalleled to any of the other laws and principles we discuss. I mean, except with the ex exception of probably feelings can't be right or wrong, good or bad, and feelings aren't something you do, they're something that you experience. But it's, I don't know, I, th I think it's number one. The law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. So we will need to spend some more time on that soon. But one of the things of the many, many things that that think that it, uh, the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority helps us understand is that we can't make anybody do anything. We don't have a right to even try to make somebody do anything. And if we do try, we're wasting our time. 
No matter how eloquent we are, if somebody in a conversation arrives at a conclusion that is in agreement with our conclusion, they themselves got themselves there. So even in these shows, when I'm reasoning with you folks, if you come to see and be in agreement with something that uh, I'm trying to explain, I didn't get you there. You got yourself there. I'll tell you how I know, because lots of people hear these things I say and walk off thinking that I'm completely full of horse papui. What's the difference then? Why, why do some people hear what I have to say and go, man, that man speaks truth. And other people say, that man is so arrogant and full of himself and so stupid. What's the difference? The difference is the individual listening. The individual listening is either open to it and willing to consider the things I'm saying, or they're not. But I have no control over that at all. So believe me, there are an endless number of psychological phenomena that people can allow themselves to be used by to completely evade seeing truth until the end of time if they want to. And there's absolutely nothing that you or I can do about it. What's our only job? Make sure that we're not being enslaved to those same tendencies. Because whatever psychological tendencies you see out there, people uh, enslaving themselves to, we also have a tendency to those psychological phenomena, which they're all just forms of denial. Talk about cognitive dissonance, talk about uh, biases, we talk about all these things. They are all forms of denial. And as people, we're all prone to denial. So what is our only job? Is it to pull everybody out of denial, all those people around us, help them escape denial? No, that's not our job. Our job is to make sure that we ourselves are not fallen victim to those same psychological tendencies. So the proper attitude going into a conversation with your partner or relative in the first place should not be to convince them of a thing. If, if somebody expresses something that is fundamentally emotionally unhealthy to you, you should push back on that because you never want to cooperate with that. So you, you do need to push back on it. But be aware that at the end of it, the odds are not in your favor that they're going to agree with you. So you have to be willing for the, the what would be the purpose of that conversation then? The purpose of that conversation would be, simply be not cooperating with emotional unhealth. That's the purpose. If, as a happy surprise at the end of it, the person says, oh my gosh, you just blew my mind, and I see everything you're saying is accurate, and it's going to change my life. I'm going to, I'm going to start working on myself from this day forward. If that happens, that's wonderful. It's probably not going to, though. So then you just have to be satisfied. What did I achieve here? What I achieved was that I did not cooperate or acquiesce in any way or play along with emotional unhealth. But in everything else, in all matters of opinion, a conversation, the purpose of it can simply be to enjoy an opportunity for one, to be able to openly express ourselves 
but then also to learn about the other person, their individuality. What will be a natural side effect of you being genuinely interested in somebody else and having a conversation with them for that purpose? Like, this is an opportunity for me to really get to know you and and understand how your brain works. What's a natural positive side effect of that? Persuasion. Persuasion will be a naturally occurring side effect of approaching conversations with that mindset. This is an opportunity for me to get to under, to know um, cousin Vinny better than I ever have before. So the thing I read was sharing our convictions can be likened to throwing a ball. My daughter and I, we, we play catch in the springtime with our baseball mitts and a baseball. We go into a field and we, we play catch. And sharing our convictions can be a lot like that game of catch. We can toss the ball gently or we can hurl it forcefully. When we throw it gently, what is the other player more likely to do? Catch it and continue playing. That the, the beauty of playing catch with my daughter is not just throwing a ball back and forth. The beauty is in the conversation and the time spent together. All the stuff that's happening in between us throwing the ball and, and playing catch. So in a, in a good conversation, you know, that can be a, your objective. So in the weeks to come, as interactions with unhealthy family members pick up, three practical things to remind yourself of. Number one, is it my attitude that failures are good? I tried to have a conversation with my dad. It went terribly. I handled myself terribly. And that's good because now I know what to do different next time. I know what adjustments to make, and I'm excited now to get to get another opportunity to try again. So number one, is it my attitude that failures are good? They're your real life gauge for where to make adjustments and without failures. Growth and mastery is impossible. Number two, is it my attitude going into a conversation that the other person must accept that I am right? Is it to get the other person to surrender or concede or to change their mind when we're not, whenever we're talking about things that do not involve expressions of fundamentally emotionally unhealthy things. So we're just talking about politics or we're talking about whether to get a, the vaccines or not or whatever these things, right? Can you allow for the fact that this is going to allow you to get to know the other person really well and there's value in that? If you communicate with that purpose, persuasion will naturally occur as a side effect. And number three, do I want to play dodgeball? Or would a friendly game of catch be better? Let's tell uh, a campfire story. This is not really a story. It's just I wanted to tell you about my grandpa on my dad's side. Here's what I remember about my grandpa on my dad's side. He lived out in the woods up on top of a hill. And... um, Way up on top of a hill, he had uh, horses, and he had uh, cattle, and he sometimes had goats. He always had chickens, and every time we'd go out to visit my grandpa, he would send me out to 
uh, collect eggs from the hen house. Go out there, man. Those 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 old hens. Some are pretty pretty nasty. You get up close to them, they'd be sitting on their eggs. They start making this. This uh, I always thought of it as like growling. You could tell when they were getting irate. He'd send me out. We collect the eggs, and then almost every time I remember being out there. Granny would fry us up some uh, eggs and bacon and salt. I mean, just country country breakfast every time. He was quite a hellion. He was always... <laughs> he chewed tobacco. So he'd have backy, uh, tobacco, chewing tobacco, around him all the time. And he would take a, a coffee can, like an old Folgers tin coffee can, uh, empty that out, and, and he'd leave it by the couch. And he'd fall asleep on the couch watching sports. It was always NASCAR or baseball. Or he, this is the grandpa I told you once before. He says, uh, do you like baseball, Brian? I said, uh, no, not really. He said, yeah, you do. I said, I do. He said, yeah. He says, who's your favorite team? Well, I didn't know anything about baseball at the time. But I remember there was a guy that I went to school with, Alan, a friend of mine. And I knew that he liked the Mets. So I said, um... The Mets. The Mets are my favorite team. He said, nope, wrong again. I, I, I am? He said, yeah. You like Cincinnati. I said, I like, I do. Yep, Cincinnati's your favorite team. Now, at that time, it was the Big Red Machine. They were unstoppable. The Cincinnati Reds were an unstoppable force. So, but, uh, yeah, that was the, my grandpa did that. And something very interesting about my grandpa was that, um, he never had the same car every time. Like every time we went out to visit him, they had a different. He had a different car, and usually there were four or five cars parked in the his driveway. And my grandpa's way of living was bartering, trading. Uh, this is something I, I don't. I never see anymore. But back in those days, that's what all the folks around here did. That it, you traded for everything. So nobody had a lot of money. What you'd do when you'd, you'd meet up with your old, your buddies and stuff was you'd ask them what they had to trade. So you might trade a knife for this or a, a car for that, or you might trade any old thing. Uh, it was just anything of value. What do you got and what would you trade? What would you take for it? And so that was what Grandpa had every time we'd go out there. That's why he always had a different car. Because he'd get these cars, he'd do some work on them, and then he would trade the cars. He might trade one car for two cars um, and then do some work on those two cars, trade those, end up with five cars. Every time we went out there, like, you know, I would <laughs> I would never know if we were driving through town or something if uh, my grandpa was driving up ahead of us or he'd passed us on the road because you never knew what he was driving. And, uh, and that's the God's honest truth. Never had the same car twice that we would go out there. So you would just never learn. You know how you learn, like, my cousin drives this car. And then when you see him driving around, you, you recognize him by the car. Couldn't do that with my grandpa because he didn't have a car long enough to be associated with him. It was always a new car, new pickup truck. Uh, had, he had tractors and uh, 
that and barns of course my, my grandpa the grandpa i'm talking about had his own sawmill so uh that's what he did in the last 10 years or so of his life a lot of my family from my dad's side grew up working in the sawmills and that's a very dangerous job very dangerous in fact i think it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world uh, it's been listed as one of the most dangerous jobs in the world just so many ways you can get hurt working around those enormous trees and the way that they're moving them around and everything but my, my dad worked in the sawmill for a long time my, my grandpa again had his own sawmill and up until the day he died i remember going out there and seeing him coming out of the woods carrying entire trees on his shoulder and that's what you do my dad taught me this when i was a young boy is uh finding a balance point on your shoulder for a, a big tree so um it looks like you're just you know the most powerful man in the whole world carrying these things out of the woods but it is really a trick to it, it you, you get it balanced on your shoulder just right so that um you can carry an, an insane amount of weight on your shoulder but it, it's really the trick is just finding that balance and what you do is you'd you'd lift you'd heft that up and walk backwards on it and then tilt that thing forward and so you've got just the right length sticking out from behind you and just the right length sticking ahead of you and you can carry some really massive logs and trees out of the out of the woods so that's a little insight into my grandpa i thought you might find an interest in the trading thing because it's just not something that you see in the world anymore yeah it's all cash everybody pays cash but for as long as my grandpa was alive and i knew him on my dad's side it was all trades every time i'd go out there brian what you got to trade and uh, i never had anything to trade i didn't have anything um but that trading bartering was such an important part of a, a, a big aspect of my life because of my dad's side of the family my dad's thinking my grandpa's thinking my uncle's uh, and even my cousins today, I, I know, are are into that, bartering and trading. So anyway, there's just a little bit of me, a little campfire story there to close out the show. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Last Symptom Podcast and uh, the announcements. Join us over there at thelastsymptom.locals.com or download the locals.com app from the App Store and then just search for The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett within. We do live streams there exclusively exclusively there on mondays you can interact with me in the chat and uh, and in real time get my thoughts on things and my feedback so it's uh, it's worth doing hope to see you there in the meantime take care